0: I want to start with the question, are you saved? Are you saved? Now, to Christians, uh, especially if you've grown up in the church, this is a very familiar uh, church ease, christian colloquial saying uh, amongst a community of faith. But I remember the first time I was trying to introduce this to my son, and I asked him, do you think you're saved? And as a kid, the only reference he had was, you mean like Superman, <laughs> right? He came and saved me. And so it's kind of like that. Now, as adults, we're not so different because I remember one time having a conversation with one of my adult friends, and he had no uh, exposure to church growing up, completely unchurched. And when I asked him uh, about salvation and this whole concept of being saved, his reference point was as well, you mean like Superman? And so to the average person, at least in Toronto, uh, especially now as it becomes more and more pluralistic and post-Christian, this notion of salvation, uh, it, it can seem even uh, overly religious, even even zealous. And it's a term that becomes more and more, uh, if you just go about asking people in daily conversations, are you saved? Do you have salvation? You might be pegged as being outlandishly religious and, and overzealous. But, 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 I, I submit to you today that our culture and the people that we run into every day at work, along the street, on the subway, wherever we go, they are all too familiar with the idea of salvation, the, the, the principle of being, imsa- being saved. We hope we might hit the jackpot. And so millions of people every day are buying their lottery ticket and they're hoping for some Uh, idea or experience of being saved financially. We put our esteem in a job, a promotion, bonuses, and pay raises. Uh, We believe that special someone, that that person in our life, that love interest, if they are just in our lives, if they say yes, or if they're in a committed relationship with us, then we'll have some sense of of happiness in life. And so generally, the salvation, it, it, it is related to a notion of being happy. Being saved, it does end in a happiness. And generally, we look for happiness in possessions, in uh, power or position, uh, in certain people, in a purpose, in pleasures. And these are all synonyms for a type of salvation that we look for in life. And so I want to submit to you that even though perhaps the term salvation isn't being used a lot, In everyday vernacular, our culture is familiar with the longing to be saved. And we all look to something or someone or some experience to be saved. Now, as we come to David, and last week, just to recap quickly, we began with the prequel to David and this man, Saul, he was nearing a point in his life where he was called as king, he was anointed and chosen as king, but long story short, he failed miserably. And he had such deep character flaws that led to disobeying God's commands uh, that, uh, and basically Saul rejected God as the one true king of Israel and over even his own heart uh, and forgetting that God, the one true king, had set him up as king Uh, God had rejected him. And we had to start with Saul because it creates the vacuum. It creates the need for a better king. And so we come now and we're now concretely introduced to David. And as we come to David, he precedes Jesus Christ approximately a thousand years. And so for us, approximately 3,000 years ago. And the entire story of David... Uh, And we're actually going to be in David till uh, the end of January into the new year. But we're going to split up into sort of another mini-series within the life of David. But uh, I guarantee you, just as Russ um, gave a bit of a preamble, David's life is so colorful, so interesting that it will just keep you on the edge of your seats. And if the preachers are doing their job to bring what's there in Scripture, it'll keep you on the edge of your seat. And we have much to learn And so as we come to this story of David, it is overall a story of God's salvation. To put it in perhaps say unchurched terms, God's story of salvation is His working out of a grand plan, His unfolding of His his grand story through all of time and history to offer us our deepest, most significant and lasting happiness. And aren't we all looking for that? Who would say no to that? Now, remember in high school, if you studied Shakespeare like myself, the, the teachers taught us that their, Shakespeare was a master of weaving themes throughout his, all his plays. And in fact, there was this one tool that he used, appearance versus reality. And this theme constantly pops up. Similarly, as you read from Genesis to Revelation, there is a constant thread of this Thing that we call the Bible. And God is weaving through all of Scripture His great story of salvation. As we delve into the life of David now, the story of David is part of this unifying thread, this unifying theme of all Scripture. And God, He's building up through David's life. This is one significant step and foreshadow of God culminating His great salvation plan. Because David, even in his character, his life and and how he went about life and his calling as king and as a shepherd made into a king, it's a wonderful, profound foreshadow of Jesus. So David is a foreshadow of God's ultimate answer. And it's going to start pointing us. And each week we want to see the signposts. We want to see the little clues into uh, this vision of Jesus that Scripture has that God is unfolding in history and His gospel of grace. And so even in these Old Testament stories, we see traces and introductions to this wonderful gospel of grace. Now, today then, here's the big idea. If last week the big idea was the question, the gospel asks, who is your king? Today, What we see, what I hope we'll see in in, uh, 1 Samuel 16 verses 1 to 13 is that the gospel looks on the heart and, and declares that God, Jesus, He is the King of the heart. The gospel looks on the heart. And what I want to show us is four aspects of our heart. First, that the gospel looks on our heart's story. Second, the gospel looks on our heart's fears. Third, the Gospel looks on our heart's assumptions. And fourth, the Gospel looks on our heart's humbledness. If uh, you know English well, if you're a student in English, you'll know that that's not a real English word, but I will defend that word uh, when we get to the point. I know we have some English majors here, so I just have to make that caveat so they still listen to the rest of the sermon. (laughs) In fact, just a quick aside, I had a friend visit once, and uh, she's a copyist slash editor. And I had not changed uh, some of the English spellings because my word processor is default American. And so she said she was distracted the rest of the service because there was an Eng- uh, American-spelt word up there. But anyhow, first point, the gospel looks on your heart's story. Now here, by your heart's story, we're referring to a personal narrative. Every one of us has a narrative. Every one of us has a theme in our lives, an overall theme which serves really as a trajectory for your entire life. Where do we see this? In verse 1, the narrative begins in chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? And so here's Samuel's narrative. His is one of disappointment, despair, grieving. More pointedly, his narrative is putting his hope in this failed king, Saul. Apparently, he was emotionally invested into this story and really wanted to see Saul become the shining knight in armor for Israel. And so I want you to notice is Samuel's personal story, his heart story, his narrative versus God's great unstoppable story. Because there's always at least two narratives in life. There is your story, or there could be our city's story, our nation's story. But above all that, the great contrast, the unstoppable story of God. Samuel was left grieving the rejection of Saul, but now we see that God had a different, greater, overarching story in mind. And so, God instructs Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. In those days, to anoint a king, they took a ram's horn that was empty, just the, the, the shell of the horn. They filled it with olive oil, and it was this physical symbol of strength and authority. And as the oil was being poured over, a, a physical symbol of a spiritual reality that God's presence was with this person who was being anointed king. And now, God says, For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Let me read that over with a different emphasis. For I, God's story, have provided for myself. God is writing His great unstoppable story here. For myself, a king among his sons. Now here, just laden in those words, is a very important Christian doctrine. And doctrines are the pillars of our faith. These tenets, these propositions of faith that come from Scripture that have become strong pillars and foundations upon which we build our faith. And something that we need to carry through life is the notion, the theology, the doctrine, the truth of God's providence. God's providence... Says, And we saw it in the Word that God will provide for Himself. God's providence says that God is working out His plan in and through history, specifically through His Word. That's the power of God. He brings about, He causes history to unfold with His spoken Word. And even here, His Word is intersecting history. And He commands the Samuel whose narrative is in a false, wrong, grieving narrative. And His Word is coming. God's Word is coming to Samuel and saying, No, now let My Word direct you elsewhere and back you on, put you back on track with My plan, My great, unstoppable plan to raise up a one true King. In providence, God's providence also says that nothing, nothing can thwart God's plan. Nothing. And God's providence says that God provides everything for the accomplishment of His plan. This picture came to me as I was reflecting on this part of the passage during the week. And I just pictured one little H2O molecule over here somewhere, just a little itty bit of water. And then I pictured it, and those could represent each of us as little drops of water. And in another place here, a strong current, a flow of water. And that flow of water, I want to liken that to God's providence in history and how what will end up being the conclusion of all time meaning God and His kingdom, His Son on the throne, and His kingdom through Jesus Christ established for eternity. That is the current of time and history. And will we as little water molecules just evaporate on the side or will we be joyfully drawn into this great current of God's providence? Now, this sweet doctrine... Of God's providence. It is something for you and I to build our lives upon. Because it gives us an assurance. Assurance. How is this assurance yours? Because God will do everything in His power to establish His Son, Jesus, and His kingdom for all eternity. And in fact, that's why we have 1 Samuel chapter 16. Because as God sends Samuel to anoint David, David becomes the foreshadow, the precursor, the prequel, if you will, like the hobbit before the Lord of the Rings. He becomes the necessary stepping stone, the season in history that will project into the future, that will set the trajectory of Jesus Christ coming one day into history as the descendant of David and God fulfilling His promise to David to establish a king forever through his lineage. And so, like a great chess match, God the Father, he orchestrates this check, this move that brings a check, as David is anointed king. But the checkmate, the checkmate would come, actually another check would come a thousand years later with the birth of Christ. And and, and the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the checkmate will come one day when Christ returns to usher in eternity. Now, to stir us to some sober reflection, and, and the Gospel does this, the Gospel is a wonderful, happy, good news of being saved from our sins. But it is not without its sobriety. And and when we think of eternity being rushed in, that naturally leads to talk of the end times and who loves to talk about the end times? No one. We hear things happen like in New York just last night, if you haven't heard, another bombing. We don't know if it was terrorism related. And this worries us, but curiously we never go the next step of just really thinking about eternity. Even in the face of tumult, we never think of eternity. And we could go on debating, are you amillennial, are you premillennial, and, and so forth, all the fancy theologies, but instead of quibbling about all that, I want to tell you that the end time is a lot nearer to every one of us. And in fact, I can definitely tell you when the end time is, okay? It's when you pass away. Jesus might return who knows when. But all of us will know. We'll know a lot sooner before He returns what the final truth is. But if your story is tied to Jesus's, then you can be assured, assured that your destiny is pleasant because of God's providence. He will do whatever it takes to provide for Himself the establishment of His glory and His kingdom through His Son, Jesus Christ. The road there may be full of toils and snares, but your final destiny will be golden without fading. I liken it to the Chronicles of Narnia. And again, today I guess is just illustrations about my boy. And and we've been slowly but surely working through uh, the Chronicles I remember the first time he had the aha moment and i shared with him well i asked him do you notice any similarities between what aslan did and if you don't know the story aslan uh he sacrifices himself for this uh, traitor boy uh, edmund and and i asked do you can you think of someone else who's done that and the answer came to him jesus it's like yeah And then the light bulb went off and he started connecting everything. And then so the queen is like saying and so forth and so forth. And and it was this amazing aha moment where this perspective, this lens came over him and he began to see this story for the greater story that it was reflecting. In fact, C.S. Lewis intentionally wrote it. And there have been... Uh, as an allegory of the gospel, and there have been many secular scholars who've written PhD. dissertations on, on Lewis's work, but they miss Lewis 's whole point. Now, more concretely, our lives, your life, your story, your narrative, as you go through your everyday, everything in your life, the suffering, the people, the successes, everything, every detail about your life, what God's providence says is they are all signposts signposts to point to the gospel. And my prayer for you, if not even today in this moment, that something would just lift off your eyes and you'd be able to see in your life this greater gospel story as the story that makes sense of your life. Well, next, the gospel not only looks on our heart's stories, but it looks on your heart's fears. Many of us define ourselves by our fears and our lives our choices our steps are determined by what trying to avoid what we're afraid of and too many of us let our fears write our story write our narrative now where do we see this and if it's any condolence to you samuel this great prophet of god was no different from you verse 2 and samuel said how can i go if saul hears it He will kill me. Samuel was afraid. Samuel had a very real fear of another human being. He was worried that his life would be snuffed out if he obeyed God. Samuel's fear precisely was that he feared living by Yahweh's word. He feared that if he obeyed God, Yahweh, that it would rob him of life. Samuel feared that the world's king, Saul, would reject him if he lived for the one true king. And you and I, we're no different. Before we were Christian, many of us, we probably had the internal debate. If I follow Jesus, then it probably means I have to change my ethics, my morality, I have to give certain things up. And we feared losing out on life. In some places of the world, literally, before they were questioned, they had to negotiate, if I follow Jesus, then my family will at the least reject me, if not attempt to kill me. And even after we accept Christ, we experience all the joys, fears set in again because of, the ongoing bombardment of the world's influences and and values, we fear. We fear making a statement for Christ. We fear living our lives and saying no or yes to certain things that distinguish us and contrast us from the rest of the world. So what's God's solution to Samuel's fear here? One word. Worship. Where do we see this? narrative continues. Samuel is transparent about his fear. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to worship. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. To worship. I am confident, based on the authority of God's Word, that there are many of you who came today before you stepped in through those doors at 826 Eglinton, you had anxieties. You had fears. But as the words of the songs that reflect God's truth and as scriptures being preached as we prayed, that something has washed over your mind and heart. That's the power of, of worshiping God. When we seek to worship the Lord, we find Him whose beauty is supremely worthwhile in life. When we seek to worship the Lord, we find Him whose beauty is supremely worthwhile in life. And it assages all our fears. And so I'm reminded of the short but theologically rich course. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. We're all familiar with the Course. Many of us are familiar with the Course, but many of us are unfamiliar with the verses. And it was written by a sister named Helen Lemmel in 1922. And she pens, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting. He passed and we follow Him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion. For more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you. He promised. Believe Him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. And then the chorus we're more familiar with. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Next, the Gospel looks on now your heart's assumptions. Where do we see this? Verse 6, When they finally came and they set up the sacrifice and Jesse's sons were starting to come through and Samuel was now waiting for God's pinpointing of who the next king would be. He looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So he looked on. He looked on. Assumptions are the lens through which you look at the world. They're a pair of spectacles, spiritual, value-driven spectacles that you wear every day. You put them on regardless of of whether you intentionally desire to put them on or not. And here, Samuel looked on alive and thought, and he's making the same mistake, the same assumption, the assumption that he had with Saul had not been corrected. Surely, he's assuming, he's very confident in his assumption, the Lord's anointed is before him. Taking a step back from yourself and identifying Your assumptions is a hard work. It's a hard work to really self-reflect. Even Samuel the prophet was not immune to incorrect assumptions. And he was assuming for Samuel here specifically, again, looking at stature, physical stature, looking at handsomeness and charisma. That's what got Saul... Elected as king. A chosen as king. And he came from a wonderful, rich pedigree. A wealthy family. And here Samuel is looking again on outward qualities. The sad truth is most times we can't even see our own assumptions. And and that's the nature of an assumption. It's like an odorless gas. And indubitably indubitably we, we, we wear these assumptions every day. Paul Tripp. He writes a wonderful book, How People Change, and it's a, I recommend it to pick it up and just to read it. And he really delves into how the gospel transforms us and changes us. And he reflects this way on the whole notion of assumptions. How much of the way you view yourself is shaped by what Jesus did for you on the cross? That's the right, the correct lens we should be Looking at ourselves, thinking about ourselves, seeing our situations, seeing our family members, our work, our, our stresses. That's the lens through which we should be looking. But instead, when you awaken each morning, what functional identity, that's what he calls it, an assumption. A functional identity shapes the way you face the day. Is your identity grounded in what you do or certain skills you possess? So you say, I am a businesswoman, I am a pastor, I am a parent. Notice how these things begin to function as identities rather than callings. Or do you define yourself in light of a past event? I'm a survivor of sexual abuse. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a person who grew up in a dysfunctional family. Maybe you define yourself in light of a current struggle. I am depressed. I am bipolar. I am an angry person. But look what the Lord does. In response to Samuel's assumption, verse 7, But the Lord said, again, His Word. It's His Word that shapes history. It's His Word that, that calls you out from your assumptions. It's His Word that challenges your values. It's His Word that convicts you of wrongdoing. It's His Word that envisions who you can truly become in Christ, conform more and more to His image. For me, December 28, 1994, this is when the Spirit just captivated my heart and I fully, truly surrendered to Christ. And He used Ephesians 1. And that evening, as I was just reading through Ephesians 1, and I'll Just read from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, and and this was at that time the verse that was the, the nail in the coffin for me. In love, he predestined us predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in Christ. And this was the Scripture that the Spirit used to cause me to trust in Christ for my salvation. Now, I say this because it was His Word. And the same Word from the same God by the same Spirit that redirects Samuel, that challenges his assumptions. He speaks to you today. He spoke to me through Ephesians 1. And then the next step, I remember after that as I was just flooded and overwhelmed with these truths and and just having a, a sense for the first time how much God the Father loved me in Christ. Then immediately, about an hour later, my first conviction, the Spirit convicting me. And the first correction that he called me to make because of his word and even based on Ephesians 1 was Albert, you need to go and apologize to your sister because for the better part of her life, you have been terrible to her. In fact, you've been abusive. And so the same love that God the Father showed me, these words in Ephesians 1, God's word that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ loved us, adopted me as His child through His Son, bringing me into His family. That same love He convicted me has to overflow to your sister. And so I remember when I confessed that, she just looked at me and said, You're crazy. But then God did a wonderful thing over the many years to follow, to reconcile us. And uh, yeah, on a side note, it's great to have their family back in Toronto for a season. And so what does the Lord say? Do not look on His appearance or the height of His stature because I have rejected Him. So how about you? Do you read, meditate upon Take the time patiently to listen to God's Word enough to let His Spirit identify, diagnose, dissect, and shatter your assumptions. And do you do the same enough to allow God to rebuild your identity, confidence, and outlook on life in Christ? Lastly, the Gospel looks on your heart's humbledness. Humbledness. Now, that is not a real English word, but I have a little bit of a bone to pick with the whole notion of being humble and humbleness. It almost assumes that we can be humble. But no one is naturally humble. If someone is humble, it's because they have been humbled by a situation or a person in life. And so the Lord continues to explain to Samuel, for the Lord sees not as man sees, He looks into the heart. The man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so then Jesse called all the other sons, the seven sons, they all passed through, and it's none of them. And then verse 10, And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And now there's one that has been neglected, marginalized, forgotten, out in the pasture with the... Uh, smelly, unruly sheep, and even religiously being unclean because he is amongst the sheep. And so, what is it about this one that was forgotten by man but chosen by God? It was his humbledness. Verse 11 Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. So yet, in the original language, it has that notion of just in colloquial terms, are you kidding? No, you didn't. That's unbelievable. And the youngest in a patriarchal society, which it was back then, the firstborn had the greatest pride in the family. And then the pride diminished as you got younger. And so he's emphasizing No, that can't possibly be. And the youngest. And then a double, this is impossible. This is, you must be wrong, Samuel. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And that's just adding insult to injury. Like he's just so much the runt of our family that we have given him the dirtiest job. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. Another notion of the humbledness. It's assumed here that, that David would be one who obeys at the command. Now, David, even himself, he had every right not to be humble because when he finally comes, it says that he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And so, from a worldly standpoint, he could have boasted. But what the Lord saw was his heart, his humbledness. So I want to liken it to this. As the gospel, as you hear it, and here we see a little clue, a little foreshadow of how the gospel works. As the gospel, as you hear the gospel, what does it elicit from you? The gospel and hearing it, the message of it, it's almost like a litmus test. Do you respond with pride and haughtiness and arrogance? I don't need that. In fact, on the contrary, to accept the gospel, you need a humbledness. A humbledness is the gateway to seeing the beauty of this message called the gospel to seeing the beauty of Jesus hanging on the cross. And it reminds me, when I was in seminary, um, I was in Chicago, and my seminary was just down the street from Michael Jordan's home. And in fact, that picture of the gate is a picture that I took. And it's just a two-minute drive down. And when I was there, uh, his kids were very young. And so a buzz amongst some of the students was that at one point one of the sem- seminarians had made a connection with Michael Jordan because their kids were in the same class. And he was able to build enough rapport at parent-teacher meetings and all that. He apparently went to them. Um, he en- built enough rapport to invite him out to church. And he did go out to church, at least these times. I don't know how much else in the rest of his life, but he went out. But his conclusion after it all was, why do I need God? Now, it's no secret that Jordan has had infidelities, a failed marriage, strained relationships, gambling issues. The point of this list isn't to judge him. We, are all, we all have our own issues and a laundry list. But it's to illustrate that lack of humbledness. He heard the gospel. But his response was what it elicited was, why would I need God? And so we begin to conclude there was one in history greater than Jordan. One greater than Samuel. One greater than Saul and greater than David. There would be a prophet greater than Samuel whose story, yes, would include fear. He feared going to the cross. But whose fear would be quieted by the greatest act of worship, sacrificing his own self on the cross. There would come a king greater than Saul who would not rest on his charisma, height, nor good looks for legitimacy. In fact, Scripture says there was nothing about him that would turn our heads and make us look at him. But whose character was so solid through and through, whose obedience to God's command to execute justice and slaughter all, the command that Saul failed to obey, that he would obey this by going to the cross himself and being slaughtered himself for those who should be slaughtered for their sin. And he would satisfy God's justice perfectly. And there would be one greater than David, one who would obey his father and leave the privileges and comforts of his throne in heaven to come down to the lonely pasture called earth to lead and feed and lay down his life for the smelly, wandering sheepfold called humanity. David had beautiful eyes, yes, but only looking into the eyes of Jesus rewrites our heart stories to end happily ever after in eternity, to assage our fears in the light of his sublime sacrifice, to shatter our eternity-ruining assumptions, and to draw out a willing humbledness because of his supreme act of humbling himself out of love for you. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. He is the one true king of our hearts.